Now I have to say, he's going to address uh, some, many, many issues. One of the issues is that there's divisions in the church, and we're going to read about that in the next few weeks. But the primary division is not between the believers who are part of this church. It's really between this church and the person who planted it, Paul. Um, That's the real division that has happened. Because these believers, in Paul's absence, Paul has moved on and is ministering other places by this point. They have begun to question his calling, his teaching, his authority. They're calling all of these things into question. And you have to understand, this would, of course, be deeply distressing for Paul because of his personal investment in this group of people. Um, These aren't people outside of the church who are having a beef with him, who are persecuting him. These are his own brothers and sisters who are having a problem with him. And more than that, they're not just random brothers and sisters. These are the very ones that he spent so much time with, invested in. He knows them. He knows faces and names. And so that's a level of hurt on top of hurt. And yet, last week we talked about invitation and challenge. How Jesus both invites us and challenges us, and how as we exist in relationship with one another, we exist in this calibrated relationship between invitation and challenge. We love each other unconditionally, we don't reject each other, and yet we love each other enough to say hard things, to risk to say hard things. Well, Paul begins this letter with high invitation. And I think it's remarkable because we know that he is writing this letter to these believers from a place of being hurt himself. Um, But he takes the time to honor them, to give thanksgiving for them, and he insists on speaking to them in, in a way that is appropriate for the dignity that has been given to them as members of the kingdom of God as citizens of the kingdom. Oh, he's going to say some hard things. He's not writing this letter just to inform them about some doctrine. He's writing this letter to correct them and in many ways to defend himself. But he is not, even in this tense moment, he's not going to speak to them in a way that does not recognize their dignity, their position in the kingdom of God. And so that's how he begins this letter. I'm going to begin reading in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. And we're going to read it in its entirety, and then I'm going to break it down some for us, all right? It says in verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever done this little exercise in your mind. When you find yourself ruminating on someone's bad qualities, sometimes it's a good habit to remember the good things about them, you know? Before you go too far down that path to remember that there are also good qualities about them, well, Paul takes it up a notch because he doesn't just say, okay, Corinth, these believers, this church has some problems, but I'm also going to remember some of the good things about them. In this greeting, Paul is actually intentional about recognizing where God is at work in the very problems of this church. Oddly enough, he actually compliments them in some of the very places where later he's going to correct them. He is intentional about recognizing God's work in their midst, even in the places where things still need to be smoothed out, even in the places where things need to be corrected and taught and maturity needs to happen. Um, So I just want to take a moment and let's break down this greeting and talk about some of the pieces in it. First of all, Paul identifies himself, which would have been customary in ancient letters. He identifies himself at the beginning of the letter. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, I'm not going to dig too much into this today because as we get into 1 Corinthians and later 2 Corinthians, this is going to be a theme and Paul is going to dig into it more and more. But for now, I just want to say that in the midst of this very hard conversation where Paul's authority is being called into question, where his ministry is being called into question, where the investment that he made in these people is being called into question, Paul knows exactly who he is. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, he's distressed by his relationship with this church, but on the other hand, he's not looking to this church for his identity. He's not looking to this relationship, to these people for his sense of identity. That comes from somewhere else. Paul knows who he is because he encountered Jesus. And even when other people, even people who are close to him, are questioning what it is that God has done in him, He's able to stand firm. It's distressing, but his identity isn't shaken because he knows who he is, because he heard the voice of God. And that's a theme that we're going to revisit. Next, Paul goes on to begin describing how he sees the church in Corinth, who these people are. He begins to unfold to them their identity as if to remind them. So the first thing he tells them is that they are holy. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. When you hear those words, sanctified or holy, you should think of the little phrase, set apart. It means that something is set apart. Sometimes we say it's no longer common because it's set apart for a special purpose. In the Old Testament, um, by God's decree, the people of God worshipped in a temple And inside of this temple was furniture that was used in worship and in rituals, and the priests would use this furniture. One of the pieces of furniture in there was a table, and on that table was laid bread. All of this was decreed by God in the Old Testament. It's called the bread of the presence. Well, that table, think about it, if it wasn't in the temple, it would just be an ordinary table, right, for ordinary use. But because it was placed in the temple, God now said that that piece of furniture was what? holy, set apart, set apart for a special purpose, in this case, particularly for God's use, uh, to bring glory to him. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the temple 
was the very place where God manifested his presence on earth. It was like a hot spot of his presence on earth. It was the place where heaven and earth intersected, where they came together. And so wherever heaven was touching earth, wherever God's presence was touching earth, that place then became holy, set apart, made special. The priests were holy because they were set apart for a special purpose, right? Now let's think about this for a second. The city of Corinth is very religious. It is filled with all kinds of temples, some of them spectacular, spectacular feats of architecture in the ancient world. And these temples were dedicated to various Roman deities or Greek deities or, uh, or even the Eastern and Egyptian mystery religions that have made their way into the city. And besides the big temples, there would have been all of these shrines set up all over the city. It begs the question, where in Corinth is the temple of the one true God? Where in the city of Corinth does heaven intersect with earth? Where in the city of Corinth can the holy things of God be found? Well, Paul's answer is going to be this in 1 Corinthians. The temple in Corinth is the church in Corinth. It is the people of God in Corinth. It is in their lives. It is in their relationships. It is in their meals. It is in their business dealings that heaven intersects with earth. That heaven touches earth in the city. You see, every church has two addresses, just like Corinth. To the church of God in Corinth, that's its earthly address, but it's also the church in Christ Jesus. That's its heavenly address. Every church is located in two places. It is the city that we live in, but there's also our status, our holy status as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, right? And where all of history is heading, what we long for when we say that Jesus is coming back is when heaven and earth fully intersect again. That's how it was in the beginning, before sin and death entered the scene. We are waiting for heaven and earth to intersect again. Amazing stuff, he says about the church. You are holy, set apart, not common. You are different than the people who are only citizens of Corinth because you are citizens of another place as well. But let's just stop for here for just a second because how in the world could Paul call this church holy? This is a deeply immoral church, a deeply immature church. Paul's about to go into a bunch of things that he has to correct with these people, false theology and bad behavior. So how could he call them holy? Because here's how Paul understands this. Paul is not asking them to become something that they aren't. He's asking them to live out of what they already are. The cross is what has made them holy. Because they have received salvation freely by no good deed of their own, now they have been called holy. And in God's eyes, this is a reality for all of eternity that cannot be taken from them. Yes, these believers act in immature ways. Yes, they act in immoral ways. But when they do so, they are simply living beneath their true identity as the holy, sanctified people of God. So Paul reminds them that they are holy. And he's reminding them of this piece of identity right in the place where they're having a problem, their immorality and their immaturity. Um, Next, I just want to point out a side note. I'm not really preaching on this today. In the next part of the passage, Paul gives his customary greeting to them when he says, grace and peace to you. 
And one thing I just want to point out about that is when he says grace and peace, this is Paul's kind of signature on his letters, his customary greeting, his unique greeting. Um, He is combining two words, grace, which is derived from the traditional Greek or Roman way of saying hello to each other, and peace, which is the traditional Jewish way. Even in the way that Paul writes to this church, He's writing to them as a multicultural church because that's what they are in this city, coming from a variety of different kinds of backgrounds, and Paul gives them the Lord's blessing from that perspective. The next piece of identity he reminds them of is he says that they have received the grace of God. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. He's reminding them that anything good that has happened among them, any victory that they've had in ministry, any revelation that they've had from the Spirit, any way that they've been changed, has all come because of the grace of God. God just gives away his stuff. More specifically, he gives away himself. And this was made possible because of the cross of Christ. They've just received it. Not by anything that they've done, they've just received it. Now, this is important for Paul to remind this church because they live in a city, for instance, where debate and intellectual um, conversation are really important. And in Paul's absence, uh, these people have come under the influence of teachers who have convinced them that Paul's teaching, the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of the cross, was somehow too simplistic. That it wasn't sophisticated enough. That it wasn't intellectual enough. And and these believers, who actually are quite immature, have now convinced themselves of their superior maturity. And they are leaving Paul behind because they think that they've graduated onto bigger and better things. Paul also notes that this grace that they've received in their life has enriched them with all kinds of spiritual gifts. This is going to be another issue in the church in Corinth. They're experiencing all kinds of empowerments by the Holy Spirit. The ability to speak and interpret in tongues, the ability to prophesy, to receive revelations from God. And Paul Paul never doubts that this is real, but in both their knowledge and their gifting, the Corinthians have begun to become prideful. Um, They've begun to think that they're better than other people, even better than Paul. And Paul gives thanks to God that it is God's grace, only his grace, that has brought about anything good in this group of people. We were talking a few weeks ago how if you're left out, left behind, if you're marginalized, well, God's grace will lift you from that place to a position of dignity But if we are prideful and if we think too much of ourselves and if we think we're better than other people or if we begin at all to think that we have ended up where we've ended up in life or spiritually just by our own smarts or our own own spiritual practice or our own whatever, grace has a way of taking us down and reminding us that anything that we've received any spiritual gift, any bit of knowledge, any insight, any revelation, anything physical and material in our lives, it is all an undeserved gift from God. But Paul wants to remind them that they have indeed received this grace, and this is their identity. Lastly, he reminds them that they have hope. He begins to turn his greeting to them uh, to 
toward Jesus' second coming. He says, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Um, He's reminding them that they have a future in God. When we talk about having hope, we're talking about having a future in God, particularly that God has bound us to his own future and that that can't be taken away from us. More than that, here's the teaching of the New Testament, that that future reality, when Jesus comes back and fully sets up his kingdom, that future reality where everything that's wrong in the world is made right again, where everything that's chaotic is brought to order, where everything is perfectly ruled in love and justice, that future reality, we're taught, has begun to invade this present reality, beginning with the birth, life, ministry, death, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The future is invading the present so that we get a taste now of those future blessings by the Holy Spirit as the kingdom of God is growing and moving and multiplying on the earth. And so he wants to remind them that they have a hope. And this is really important for this group of people because they have some really bad theology surrounding the second coming of Christ. Um, They actually think that what they are experiencing now spiritually with all of its spiritual manifestations and the visions that they're having and the dreams that they're having and the prophetic words that they're experiencing, they think that what they're experiencing now is the apex. They think they've reached it. They think that they've achieved this spiritual status. And Paul has to tell them, no, folks, it gets better than this, right? What you're experiencing is good, but it gets a lot better than this. More than that, they have started to adopt this false theology. It really comes from paganism that what matters is what's spiritual and their physical bodies don't matter. So they're looking forward, they're, they're you know, saying that they're part of this spiritual kingdom, but because of that, their physical bodies don't matter. And this is actually becomes the theological license for the sexual immorality among these believers. They're talking like their bodies don't matter. Paul has to remind them that because the future is invading the present, everything matters. All of our relationships, our bodies, our jobs, our education, our relationship, everything matters because that future is invading the present. Wouldn't it have been easy for Paul to write these people off with their bad theology, with their immaturity, with their immorality, and say, you know what, you don't have a hope. But you know what? Paul knows that the second coming of Jesus is not dependent on them having a right theology about the second coming of Jesus, right? That is happening regardless. It's an established fact. And because Paul believes that these people are in Christ, he knows that even if they're getting it wrong, even if they're messing some things up, that future reality cannot be taken away from them. They are bound with God for all of eternity. His future is their future. So Paul acknowledges this. Now think about this. They have issues, you know, with, uh, they have issues with immorality. Paul calls them holy. They've become prideful. But Paul says, no, your identity is God's grace. They have bad theology about the second coming of Christ. Paul says, you still have a hope. Why is Paul so confident about this group of people? And and for that matter, let me ask, how can we remain confident about each other when we come into knowledge of each other's defects? 
when we come into knowledge of the things that we believe that aren't quite right, when we see each other's failings, well, Paul says it later in the passage, his confidence clearly comes from one place. It's because he believes that God is faithful. He says he is faithful. He will keep you to the end. Let me be clear. Paul is not looking at the evidence, the behavior, the theology of the Corinthians, and saying, well, it looks better than worse, so I think we're going to be okay, you know, until the end. Paul is saying, no, I'm trusting in the only one that can be trusted. I love these people, but what I'm, I'm trusting is that God is going to do something here. God is going to see them to the end. That's his confidence. Now, I hope as I say all of this, you see some just really clear applications to us as a church because if it's true for them, then it's true for us as well. Isaac, if you go to the next slide. If they are holy, if that's their identity in Christ, well, then we are holy. If they've received grace, well, then we have received grace. If they have hope, then we do too. Let me be clear what I'm saying. We are holy. Oh, you might hear that and think, well, you don't know what I did this last week. You don't know about this nagging addiction in my life. You don't know the role that lust or greed or gossip plays in my life. You're right. Maybe I don't know, but here's what I do know. That you are holy if you are in Christ Jesus. It is your position it is your identity. And we don't preach these sermons so that you will become something that you aren't. We hold out this truth so that you will know what you are and begin to live out of that reality. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are the very place where heaven and earth intersect in the spheres where you live your life. You are the very temple of God. Paul's going to say that later on in 1 Corinthians. You have received grace, so you might think you're nothing. You might think you're poor, marginalized. You might think you don't deserve anything, but grace will lift you. You have received grace. Or you might think too much of yourself, talk too much about yourself, brag about yourself, harbor prideful thoughts about yourself. Well, grace will mercifully lower you to the place where you can receive what it is that God has to give you. And friends, you most certainly have a hope. Your future has been bound with God's future. That future reality is breaking in on the present. And that means that there is nothing in your life, not even the hard things, there is nothing in your life that now doesn't matter. Because heaven is touching all of it. Because heaven is coming all over it as the kingdom of God breaks in. This is why Paul has the capacity to see where God is at work even in the midst of their mess. And you might be saying, okay, you're saying this stuff, but it doesn't feel true. I understand that. Our feelings lie. But I do have confidence. And it's the same confidence as Paul. I'm not looking at the evidence. I'm not saying, well, hopefully some of you will make it. Hopefully, I'm saying God is faithful. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying he will do it. 
He will see us to the end. He holds us to the end. The story from beginning to end is his story. It's not ours as individuals. It's not ours as a church. It's his story. We got invited into his story. He's the author, the finisher, and he will finish it along the lines of his grace and good character. All right? So if I were going to sum up what I'm preaching to you today, it would just be this. Know who you are and live what you be. Know who you are and live what you be. First of all, know who you are. I think one of the reasons we sometimes don't live up to our true identities is because we are unaware of it. I think that's why Paul begins reminding them of who they are before they get to the hard conversations. Let's first of all talk about who you are. Before we talk about behavior, let's talk about who you are. Because sometimes we don't believe it. Um, I've learned some of these lessons by working with kids, especially in my early years of ministry at Aliquippa Impact. I remember one time there was a girl in our program. I may have shared this story before. But that summer we had an artist with us doing a photography project with our kids. They were taking cameras and taking their own pictures. And at the end, we put on a little photography show down at Uncommon Grounds Cafe in Alcoa. It was really nice. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette came out and covered it and gave the kids some attention. It was really good. I remember in the days leading up to the photography show, um, I walked into the cafe to see the artist who was visiting with us this summer with um, a young female student in our program. And I have to tell you, this student was particularly a behavior challenge in our summer day camp program, often a source of frustration for many of our staff. But something happened when this artist gave her a camera. It's like a whole new world got unlocked for her, and it was clear that she just had some natural ability and gifting, and she was completely unaware of it until this camera was in her hands. And so the visiting artist started spending time with her, aside even from the little art program we were running that summer, and started walking with her around the community. So I walk in to see them both, the artist and this girl, sitting at a computer. And uh, the artist waves me over and says, hey, you need to see this. You've got to see this. So I go around, and there is this beautiful photograph, actually, of a homeless person in our city. And she was centered perfectly in the picture, and kind of you could see Franklin Avenue behind her. It was kind of blurred out, and she had this big kind of toothless grin as she was looking at the camera. And somehow, this uh, young student had just captured something of this homeless person's beauty, dignity, of their worth, just in this one picture. So I did what just came naturally. I began to compliment the picture, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't making it up. It was extraordinary. And I said, oh, I said to the student, oh, my goodness, that is beautiful. Did you take that picture by yourself? That's incredible. It was obvious to me right away that she had talent, and probably more talent than, than most people were able to recognize. And her reaction surprised me because right away she buried her head in her her hands, and started saying, no, 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 and just could not take it, could not face it. You know what it was? She, and she had a lot of wounds and trauma in her life, she could not face that something that beautiful had come out of her, that something that beautiful had been created out of her mind, out of 
her ability, out of her will. She started to say, I'm not coming to the art show. I'm not coming to the art show. And you know what? Sadly, she didn't. We couldn't get her to come. The beauty of it was just too much to face. And friends, when it comes to our identity, especially when we experience the failure of sin or the setbacks of life, I think sometimes this is what we're like, burying our head in our arms and saying, no, 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 no. I don't want to face it because it seems too good to be true. God, how could you call me holy when you more than anyone else know what I do? God, how could... I receive your grace when I've failed so many times. How could you give me this kind of hope when I've lost hope so many times? How how is all of that possible? Well, it's possible because of the cross of Christ. And it's like God is saying, no, come to the art show. Come and see what's hanging on the walls. Come and see who you are. Come and see your identity in me that cannot be taken away. I'm not asking you to live up to the beauty in this art. I'm saying you are the art. I'm saying you're it. I'm saying you're the one that I created. You're the one that I died for. And nothing, not even the corrective conversations that are coming in just a few chapters of 1 Corinthians, nothing can take that away. This is God's own doing. It's good in his own eyes. And it can't be stolen from us. So know who you are. And then secondly, live what you be. (laughs) If this is what you are, then begin by the Holy Spirit to live in that kind of dignity. To begin to live in that kind of goodness. To begin to live in that kind of freedom. To begin to live in that kind of joy. Friends, I can tell you, as long as our journeys toward holiness is a journey of guilt, and let's face it, a lot of our churches have gotten this wrong. As long as it's a journey towards guilt, we will never get to that place. The only one who can make something holy is God. If he calls it holy, then it's holy. And then the outflow of that is holiness. The outflow of that is a life that's been transformed and changed. Well, I don't know if I can do it. Well, God is faithful. I don't know if that, if that can let go of that thing. Well, God will hold us to the end. It's God's grace. If he said it, then he will back it up and make sure that happens. If he called us holy, then he'll find a way to make us holy. He's going to do it, right? So begin to live out. I, I learned this with kids too because, you know, sometimes, and you know this if you're a parent, we experience this over the years in our programs, sometimes you have to say hard things to kids, Right? And discipline. Sometimes you, but I have found with all of the kids that I've worked with that kids can tell if I love them. There's some things that can't be faked, and that's one of them. Love is one of those things. It can't be faked. And kids are some of the best read on what is fake and what isn't, right? And they can tell if they're loved. And I've learned that if I'm truly in my heart, not a facade, but if I really believe in the dignity of this child, then I can say hard things to them and they will still feel loved at the end of that conversation. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with kids over the years. It's just like, you are better than that. You have more dignity than that. You are worth more than that. When we begin to speak to each other in those ways, we something crazy happens, we actually begin to believe it. (laughs) That it might be true. And that the lives that we're living, 
with its addictions and hang-ups, might be really more impoverished than what we realized when the riches of God are waiting for us. Amen? Know who you are and live what you do. 